Welcome to Phone Messages, Episode 92, The Poet. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play a message from Andy Golub. Andy is the brother of David Golub, who we heard way back in Episode 41. Like his brother and many others in this podcast, Andy ended up settling in the New York City area. Despite our proximity, when I interviewed him about his message, we talked via phone. Talking in person mid-pandemic still presents a challenge. His message comes from the summer of 1989 and is about 50 seconds long. After it plays, we will hear Andy's response. Let's listen. A lot of noise, the outgoing. Said little. Is this your view? Then that she is not faithful to the poet. Alarmed face asks me, why did he come? Courtesy or an inward light. Uh, this is Andy. Um, well, uh, hard to call. I'm going to be in till about 4:30 today, at least, and then probably to about 5:30. I can go to swimming sometime in between now, which is about two, and then it's on Tuesday, no, Monday. Mon no, it's Tuesday today. You're at the radio station, are you? I'll call you there, and if I don't get in touch, you, I'll see you later. I'm not 100% sure what was going through my mind at the time, and was there something of the way that you left an outgoing message? And, it, you know, it's really strange to be so specific about the hours and have no clue what day of the week it is, so... At that time, I must have come back or about to go to a class that I was attending that summer on Dante and the Inferno. It, it was like one of those ancient Hyde Park professors that had been around for years, and he would often hold class in his apartment, drinking wine among the other classmates. It, kind of like a Roman holiday, I guess, you know, the days and thinking about ancient poetry and, and heroic meaning. And we, we went to hell and, and through it, I guess. You were quoting some passages yeah. from Dante's. Yeah, my guess is about a Dante speaking about Beatrice. Uh, you know, maybe it was like we had some tentative plan to go out, and maybe I thought that invitation from Dante was like an invitation to go out on some sort of interesting adventure. You had a radio show as well. I got a late night slot. I remember my first show, I, I played the uh, Who's version of Batman. It was a request because like, some kid in the neighborhood asked for a Batman to be played. He was thinking I was going to play Prince. I, you know, I was really pleased to get a request, but I probably would have been better off if I had actually respected that request. Normally, did you go home for the summer? Or? The previous year, I uh, went home and I, I worked at a Coca-Cola warehouse right next to Brandeis University. It was, you know, a hard, like, backbreaking work at some level, but there was also, like, a kind of creativity where you'd actually have to build pallets of all these different shapes of cases that didn't fall over. Go to the first station, and you load up however many two-liter bottle cases that are on the order, and you put those on in one layer, and then you might go to another station, and you have, you know, the cases of 24 Schweppes bottles, and another station might have cans, and another station, you know, sort of like the one-liter bottles, that, or like the... 16 ounce or 12 ounce little bottles. And so each little shop has a, a range of different products. And so you'd have to figure out how these different shapes fit on this four by four piece of wood, kind of like, you know, reverse Jenga. 
so you didn't have it fall over. And so then you'd wrap it up in plastic and load it up for the truck to take it to the shop. You know, the the shop owner would have, then have basically like the shrink-wrapped set of, of Coca-Cola items that they had ordered. And you'd have maybe eight of those on a truck. You said the word station. Yeah, so you imagine like a giant warehouse. And so there'd be like 25 feet tall towers of two-liter bottles. And then there'd be a one, one or two little pallets on the ground. And I would be loading up my order form, and then there'd be someone driving one of those big forklifts. Whenever like the lower level pallets were empty, they would just take another stack of whatever that that flavor was and bring it down. And the hotter it would get, you know, the later we would have to stay because more people would want Coca-Cola orders. And so I would get there at about four in the afternoon and stay sometimes almost all night. The first week I, I was overwhelmed by the 10 cent vending machine, so I'd get as much as I wanted any flavor. But then I realized it was just not good. It was. But, you know, there's, there's all the flavors that, you know, you think like there's like the grape Fanta and orange and then lemon lime and Fresca and Tab. Like Tab was my favorite of all the brands. By 1988, the year Andy worked at the warehouse, Diet Coke had far surpassed Tab in popularity. But Tab was the first sugar-free cola produced by Coke. Before the 1960s, there was not much interest in diet sodas. In fact, a 1961 TV commercial for Coke, starring former acrobat Connie Clausen, actually promotes the drink as a way to keep off weight. The first sugar-free cola was introduced in 1954 by the Nehigh Corporation which later became Royal Crown. It was called Diet Right and was initially targeted at diabetics and others with a medical condition that required avoiding sugar. However, in 1961, Diet Right was reformulated with an improved taste and marketed to the general consumer. Despite the emergence of Tab in 1963 and Diet Pepsi in 1964, Diet Right continued to dominate the low-calorie soft drink market throughout the 1960s and 70s. As a kid, my mom rarely let me drink soda, which in Minnesota we called pop. But she was a regular drinker of Diet Right which came in an 8-pack of refillable 16-ounce bottles. Just like milk bottles of an earlier era, these soda bottles were not intended for single use. Instead, you would return the empties to the supermarket and receive 5 or 10 cents back on each bottle, usually applied to your next purchase. The sale of soda in reusable bottles declined from 95% in 1960 to 32% in 1980, as at first cans and then plastic replaced glass bottles on supermarket shelves. 1982 saw the introduction of Diet Coke, which soon became the best-selling sugar-free soft drink. In the 1980s, my mom followed the trends and abandoned Diet Right bottles for Diet Coke in a can. 
By the end of the decade, according to the Milwaukee Sentinel, returnable bottles represented less than 2% of sales. Andy later told me that when he worked at the Coke warehouse, they still stocked reusable bottles. And these bottles became a terror when one day a full tower of stacked pallets crashed down in a rain of glass shards. The era of returnable Coca-Cola bottles came to an end in 2012 when an independent bottling company in Winona, Minnesota ceased the production of Coke in six-and-a-half-ounce bottles. The deposit on these bottles was 20 cents at the time. They can now be purchased online for $20. Now, as for the name of Andy's professor that summer, although I was able to find a course of Dante's Divine Comedy advertised for the 1991 University of Chicago summer session, not long after Andy took the class. Unfortunately, the professor's name was not listed. So if anybody thinks they might know who this faculty member was, please get in touch. You can contact me for this or any other comments through my website, pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to Andy for sharing his memories. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.